Interdependence Network and the Call Me Al podcast. Uh, thanks so much for uh, for plugging in, and and we have a, a great uh, show today. We're uh, so excited that one of my uh, one of my favorite friends, um, uh, Keenan Weller, is joining us today, and Keenan is a the um, co-director of uh, a really innovative and forward-thinking organization called Live, Work, Play in the Ottawa area. And uh, Keenan and I have been uh, friends for a number of years and have had an opportunity to, uh, to uh, spend time with, at his agency with uh, his colleagues and, and, and the folks that they serve a number of times. Um, and uh, so, Keenan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, delighted uh, that you're able to join us, Keenan. And uh, we know that, um, uh, you know, we want to jump right in. We do this kind of as a conversational style, as you know, and uh, go about a, about uh, 30 minutes. And so um, as we get started, Keenan, tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, a little bit about you, and then we'll get into live, work, play. So tell us a little bit about Keenan Weller. <laughs> oh, that's a tall order. Well, let's see. Um, <laughs> I think relevant to uh, today's conversation, it's important to know that, uh, you know, I grew up here in Ottawa and uh, went to the public school system. And one of the features of that system uh, or deficits was that uh, people with disabilities were completely uh, separated from my life. And uh, so that's very relevant because um, how this all got started was uh, an experience uh, as a young person. I think I was about 20, and I was looking for part-time work during university. And I was checking out the job center, and they had a job for working with people with developmental challenges. And I uh, honestly had no idea what that meant. Uh, I actually thought it was for uh, children of parents of uh, you know, challenging economic means. I thought, okay, that must mm. be what that, what that is. I'd had some experience <laughs> with that population. So I applied for the job, and I'm there in the interview, and they're asking all these questions about Down syndrome and autism. Mm. And how, what's going on mm. here? So I don't know what it says about that organization, but they hired me. Um, and so <laughs> on the basis of my first evening on the job in what was essentially a social recreational program, I actually met at the age of 21 for the very first time in my life, at least knowingly met, you know, a person with Down syndrome, um, a person mm -hmm. with autism and other intellectual disabilities. And that moment kind of changed my life because uh, I was very happy that this happened. But then I went home and a few hours later, I had this whole dawning realization that, oh, this means that these people have been kept away from me my whole life and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. And what's mm -hmm. going on here? Uh, this is actually mm -hmm. how our society is, is organized. So that's a, a little bit about me as related to huh. my work. And uh, aside from that, you know that I'm a, a big football fan, CFL, and NFL, mm -hmm. I love photography, and uh, those are some of the things that uh, get me going outside of advocacy. Uh, and you're a tennis buff, too, I, I know. Um, Huge fan, and uh, that gets me down to the – my frequent visits to the United States are often based around the availability of a tennis tournament. <laughs> it's a motivator. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> and I don't and, think we can – I should get specific. I'm a huge Steelers fan, uh, even though it was a tough year. Uh, that will never change. Steelers, right. Yeah, you yeah. Bet. It's, uh, you, you know, bet. ups and downs and – Glad that you're a part of the Steeler Nation. Uh, in, <laughs> Definitely. In but, uh, 
Hey, Keenan, tell us a little bit about um, how Live Work, tell us a little bit about Live Work Play and how it, how it was initiated. How did that, that, that organization come into being? Sure. And, you know, it really built out of uh, that experience that I shared. And I had gone done a lot of other things, but it was something that always interested me. And uh, my wife, Julie, had a history of uh, working at Christie Lake Camp with a wonderful man, uh, Dr. Offord, who was really um, a world leader and has won many, had many, won many awards. He's passed. But uh, looking at just, you know, people with uh, children with disadvantages in life and, and uh kind of had the simple perspective, like the race of life isn't always fair and there are things you have to do to help make it a little more fair. And so she brought that perspective together with the experience I'd had. And we really started out, it was completely focused just on advocacy. Um, could we build a network to help uh, families and bring them together with other people and, you know, work towards a more inclusive community? And mm-hmm. within a, about a two-year period of time, really the result of all that was... Um, a decision that we needed to move past, try to move past that and actually provide some alternatives to the existing uh, service system is what I'll call it. And, uh, you know, uh, that seemed like a long road to hoe, but it actually came to be that uh, by the summer of 1997, we'd gotten a startup grant from a foundation and uh, opened our first little office and got started. And uh, in the first uh, 10 years or so, we made a lot of mistakes replicating a lot of the same things that many organizations have done around congregating people in programs. And I think our uh, perspective was just, oh, well, but we'll do it better. And uh, mm-hmm. in the end, that wasn't, that doesn't really matter. That distinction, mm-hmm. you know, getting an A plus, but on the wrong subject. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, we made some dramatic uh, changes as you know, around the time that uh, mm-hmm. we had met you at a community living Ontario conference, I believe. And, uh, mm-hmm. One of the influences of people who were saying, well, what is the actual, what are you trying to accomplish here? And had some hard mm-hmm. conversations with our staff. And yeah, within about a two-year period of time, uh, it pretty much completely shifted away from a site-based sort of program to uh, individualized, person-centered support and with a focus on uh, social capital. Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about that that transition, you know, you were you you mentioned that <clears throat> the initiation of your organization was pretty similar to what has been going on and what's been happening in terms of kind of congregative programs and and wh- how does live work play? How does it frame itself if it's not you know providing sort of programs to people with disabilities? What makes it unique? What makes it different? Right. Well, I think we are like some others, uh, but you know, here in Ontario, it's we're probably in a pretty small percentile where we kind of see current. We see it shifting. Number one, that's number one thing. What we're doing at this moment is not what we'll be doing next year or ten years from now, and that's mm-hmm. because we're not in control. It's we are part of a society that is shifting, and so we are going to have to move with that. So right now, you know, although. We provide, you could say, you know, directly support some 150 individuals with an intellectual disability label. Um, a big part of our work is everybody else. So employers, mm-hmm. you know, we work with over 100 employers. We work with every kind of community venue imaginable, whether it's an art gallery or a YMCA, or it could be really anywhere that people go. And so that is the growing 
part of our work is something like going and talking to an employer who said, I need to build a more inclusive workplace. Can you help me? And so, you know, that is a, that is going to continue to grow. And as that grows, the need for the other types of work we do will change. And so how much time you're spending helping an individual, you know, with things they need to do so that, um, they can make their way in the world um, safely and, and uh, successfully. That diminishes as the inclusive nature of the venues and everything else shifts. So we're well, very well aware of that. And we, you know, even from five years ago to today, the, the you know, the focus of what we're doing has changed as um, mm-hmm. the reception of, um, you know, employers and sports organizations. There's things that have just changed so much. Ten years ago, someone said to me, you know, I really like to play football or hockey um the options frankly were pretty limited if you didn't want to be in a in a you know some kind of special needs sports league um and now here in ottawa there's choice there are mm-hmm. there are sports organizations that brand themselves as sports is for everyone isn't that great um mm. and so you know the work of me going to some bowling association and saying well you know, having Down syndrome is not a reason to bowl with other, not to bowl with other people. Um, and frankly, you're missing out on a really good bowler. I mean, these were things that I actually was, was doing. I mean, it just sounds so ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. but isn't it wonderful now that at least, you know, that still does happen sometimes, but the need to fight those kind of fights, um, is yeah. much less. And it, it's more about, they might still need some help though. Um, you know, a person they just might not be familiar with uh, some of their strengths, their needs, and so they might. But yeah. it's a very different job, and so that's going to keep changing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we talk often on this podcast, and I know you and I, um, as friends over the years, have have talked a lot about macro change, about community change, and and you know, you've already articulated that that things have begun to change and in in the Ottawa community. But um, give us a, kind of a, can you crystallize an example of how community is changing to accommodate as opposed to the traditional methodologies of trying to, I don't know, uh, fix someone so that they can fit into the community as it is. Could you give an example or two of, of, of how the community has changed? Sure. I mean, I'd be happy to. I think the the sports example was one of them. Uh, but if I look at, you know, housing, which when you say housing, it just brings to mind so many challenges. You have financial, you have uh, issues of accommodation and inclusion. But uh, we recently, um, I guess it's been three years now, established um, a partnership with uh, the Multi-Faith Housing Initiative, which was um, a group of religious organizations that came together and really decided, we, you know, we want to uh, develop uh, nonprofit housing, and we want it to be for everyone. And so we heard about the work they were doing, and at at one point, the everyone that they were talking about, it didn't specifically include, you know, the population we support. It didn't exclude them, but it wasn't something they'd actively thought about. So they put all kinds of work into, you know, how we're going to make sure that different cultures are welcomed and different, uh, mm-hmm. you know, different economic levels and and all of that. And so that fit very nicely with, um, well, what about this population? And I guess one of the key features of that is they didn't do intellectual disability accommodation. They worked on what does an inclusive community look like, uh, who is kind of representative of that community, and what would everyone's needs be. And so 
you know, as as you often talk about, Al, it, it, they weren't disability solutions. They were welcoming solutions uh, that worked for everyone. And so now uh, we have, uh, I think it's uh, about 200 people that live in this new neighborhood that was built, and uh, uh, eight of them are, are people that we introduced to that community. And they fill all those same roles that other uh, residents there do, um, which is people, when they first arrive, they're basically assigned uh, a support. Here's another person that lives here who knows the ropes, and they'll show you around. So everyone we support benefit from that initially, and now they are some of the people providing that support to others. So that mm-hmm. status, they're not, um, you know, they're not a special needs group within the community. They are fully a part of the community and filling all the same roles that other people um, are able to fill if they want to do so. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, that particular housing community is a great example. And then there's just so many with employment that, uh, you know, we moved from, if I think back 10 years when we first really were starting to focus on employment and moved away from doing kind of fake jobs in our own environment, something that still goes on, unfortunately, in a lot mm-hmm. of uh, agencies. Yes. But we realized this isn't working. No one's transitioning to anything. Because uh, sure mm-hmm. enough, a fake job only prepares you for fake work. So it doesn't really right. help you, you know, it doesn't help transition. So as we started having conversations with employers, uh, I think we probably committed many of the same sins that others do when they try that, which is, you know, we were making a charity-based appeal instead of an employment-based appeal. And so mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. learned how to speak with employers and um, really focus on uh, their needs in, in their business and their workplace. And so that has changed dramatically in terms of, I think initially some of the first jobs we got, they were really just to be honest. It's an employer saying, yeah, I'll do this to be nice. Uh, mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. has very different conversations today where an employer is saying, yeah, like we really, our workplace is better off. We've learned uh, from diversity uh, and inclusion. And so can mm-hmm. you help us with that? And by the way, mm-hmm. here are some of the needs that we have. And do you have someone that could help us with that? And so mm-hmm. those are really different. They're not really disability um, conversations in the same way that they were 10 years ago. Their mm-hmm. conversations about um, respecting that the workplace should reflect the community that's around and that that's good for business. I think that's mm-hmm. been really key and has changed, you know, our approach and the successes mm-hmm. that we've had. So it's, I don't want to single out too many individual employers because they've all done such a great job. But, you know, one of the first we had was with um, a, a, a burger chain that started here locally called the Works Gourmet Burger Bistro. And that mm-hmm. owner, that individual owner basically just had this perspective that, uh, you know, being welcoming and inclusive um, is what I need for retention of employees. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to recruit and retain in a very competitive environment. And so the way to do that is, is uh, you know, welcoming people and and being open to uh, mm-hmm. diversity. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the yeah. Those are those are great, great examples. And and certainly, you know, the the paradigm is is starting to shift and and i know advocates like you and julie and myself are 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 excited to see that but but there's one issue that i wanted to get your your perspective on that is also kind of seen as an innovative approach but it might it might lead uh, into you know, the same old, same old. And, and what I, what I mean by that is, 
uh, there's a you know uh, movement afoot about money money following the person. You know, if an individual has a disability and they're eligible for some you know government uh, supported services, um, traditionally and historically, those fundings <clears throat> that funding was made available to organizations, and then the organization you know reached out and provided services and. Now, with the shift to money following the person, the, the effort is that government funds uh, go directly to an individual with a disability, and then that person and their, and their family uh, can then purchase um, services from whomever they want to purchase services from. And, and in, uh, you know, on the front of that, on the face of that, it sounds very innovative, uh, very empowering, you know, very consumer uh, driven, and and all of those things are a part of that. But in in some ways, if the consumer then begins to choose to hire uh, someone who really is, uh, you know, perhaps not that innovative, those services can in fact become stifled. Speak to me a little bit about how you perceive the team environment as mm. sort of a as a way of uh, of dealing with with some of those uh, risks, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really loaded question. Uh, the yeah, yeah. you know supportive teams, I think, is just so critical. I'm trying to imagine this. So I actually had the early experience. I I, all, I left that out of my story, but I also did, you know, I did one on one work um, with families that that basically hired me as a worker to spend time. Uh, with right. their child. Um, now that has many deficits uh, in terms of, you know, the dependency on one relationship and all kinds of, you know, negative things we can see uh, about that. But really the biggest was, uh, well, uh, you know, even my ego is not quite big enough to think that I knew every single thing that would be good for that kid. And so mm -hmm. I think now in in our environment here, how every single day everyone's bouncing off ideas off other people and sharing challenges and ideas and how critically important that is. And also just from the basic perspective of if something happens to one of us, there's other people who know the person and uh, mm -hmm. you're not suddenly faced with finding a stranger to uh, to replace someone. So it's very right. precarious. Um, I mean, that's a very precarious relationship um, uh, and creates a lot of dependency on you know, one person uh, filling a role. And I think there's information now coming out of the United Kingdom where they had actually made this move uh, years, years ahead of other countries. And there, I think people really have to pay attention to what the findings are, because a lot of this was cost-driven, if we're honest, right? So government's mm -hmm. going, this is, this is super expensive. Look at, the, look at the amount of the budget that's transfer payments of these agencies. You know, if we mm -hmm. just had less agencies and maybe, you know, it's cheaper, the private sector could do this more cheaply. And mm -hmm. they did experience that for a time. But as we all know, uh, so once the nonprofits were more or less uh, put out of business uh, because, you know, just regulatory environments and standards and things were, were different and higher. Uh, mm -hmm. So costs initially went down and now they've gone back up and past where they were. Uh, because mm -hmm. now the competitive environment doesn't include those nonprofits. And so that is a lesson we have to pay careful attention to. But I think mm -hmm. we just have to be careful in general when we insert profit motive into human services. And mm -hmm. so 
just being very wary of that. So where, what does that mean? And so, well, one way you can increase your profits is to reduce your expenses. And the most common way of doing that is you want to keep your human resources costs as low as possible. Okay. So now right. we are already seeing. So how does, how does a, you know, a private um, provider, you know, someone's just put up a shingle 100 feet from this office and said, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll take, if you have individualized government dollars, I'm here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm charging half of what half of what liberal players charge. Yes, are going. Oh, I guess charities are expensive. And going well, there's mm-hmm. nothing actually that you know. It's not being a charity that's expensive. It's that uh, paying staff enough to you know to have a home in this city and raise a family mm-hmm. and have health care mm-hmm. and uh, right. make a living and stay on the job because it's the worst thing uh, you know in human services is the pe- humans that are serving you are constantly changing. Um, yes. Or if yes. they've only taken the job because they can't find something else. This is not who yes. you want or this is not who you want around you providing intimate care. It's someone that yes. has taken the job because they're desperate and they mm-hmm. see human services as like, you know, something I had to do till I could get something else. So yeah. I look at our team here of, you know, caring, dedicated people who are proud of their profession, um, you know, and can make a living and, and survive. And um you know, to change that up to to cut costs by hiring unqualified people who are going to leave and just keep a revolving door going. Uh, it's pretty scary. I think there's a lot of evidence that that is really what happens because that's the only way, yeah. that's the only reason it's cheaper is either you are getting around regulations that impact on um, the charitable organizations that provide these supports uh, and, and you're cutting yeah. corners in other ways because we're, you know, we're not uh, throwing money out the window here. We're, we're frugal folks yeah. too, but we... We recognize that, uh, and training. I mean, as you know, you've met our staff at, at events and those, there's mm-hmm. costs to that. Uh, it's, but yes. it's critically important. How do we keep, how did we make the changes we made over the last 10 years? Well, we went out and found best practices and brought people in yeah. to teach us and, and yes. uh, to challenge yeah. us, frankly. So. Yeah. 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 You know, the, 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 this conversation is really, really, um, a critical one that, that we're having right now as it relates to the shifting <clears throat> approach. And, and you're absolutely correct that, you know, most services, uh, for folks with disabilities anywhere in Canada and the United States and in the UK and Australia are funded uh, from governmental dollars that are generated. Yet we know governmentally in, in almost every cultural situation, um, the notion is how do we save money? How can we cut taxes? How can we lessen expenditures? And, um, and in some ways with, uh, with, uh, that, you know, with that energy happening, um, we're seeing a cut to philosophical principles as well. Because I think the things that you just enumerated, um, regarding the, you know, uh, the continuity, um, of a team, uh, you know, the notion that you have people who are committed, who want to be there, that they're exposed to best practices, that, that they have an opportunity to sort of think beyond the existing paradigm. Um, when, when, uh, when consumers begin to shift to making individual choices, um, some of that can be risked. Or, or, or mitigated. So, so it's a, it's really an important uh, conversation. What do you think is, what do you think's in the cards, Keenan, 
with these kinds of things unfolding. Where do you and Julie see the system going in terms of your own exposure and in a more general way? You know, you and Julie have emerged as really leaders, not just in Canada, but, but you know, around the, around the world in terms of um, inclusive uh, community perspective. What, what, what do you see unfolding over the next 10 years? I know it's a loaded and big question. Hmm. <laughs> I think all we can do is try and keep our eye on the prize of outcomes. And, uh, you know, in the face of a lot of these changes, I've been trying to kind of hone my message on, because I really don't care too much about the delivery system of how funds and resources get to people. What I care about is what's the quality of life they have at the end. And so if people are having homes of their own and jobs and friends, um, how the money from the taxpayer got to make that happen is not so important to me as that we don't lose sight uh, that that is what the outcome should be. And so I think the key to kind of dealing with some of these challenges and shifts and the, all that terrain is just to say that, um, you know, I'm not saying that agencies are better just because they're agencies, because frankly, that's simply not true. There's some that need mm-hmm. dramatic change or probably should close, frankly. And yes. I totally get why, for example, I totally get why in some communities a family member would say, yeah, well, 5000 bucks I can spend on anything I want uh, is sure a lot better than this very expensive program that isn't is delivering the opposite of what I want. And you can't yeah. argue that. And so yes. their issue is not, you know, they're using the funding mechanism as an end run to solve a different problem. And I totally respect that. And I understand why people take that position. So I think it's just, you know, continuing our work with you and other advocates, you know, across the world that people should have lives like other citizens and, you know, how we support them to get that, um, you know, that has to be the outcome. And so if we, you know, start handing out these individualized dollars, then it it could very well result in a resurgence of, of you know, new group living projects, for example, or new mm-hmm. new shelter workshops. Uh, because mm-hmm. now it's going to take government, it's going to actually free government from some, from certain, you know, human rights expectations because they'll be able, it's people's choice. You know, we see this already mm-hmm. emerging, uh, with mm-hmm. some of these group programs actually having a bit of a resurgence through the private market. And so I think we mm-hmm. have to hold feet to the fire on some things are not actually, uh, negotiable on human rights and, and around uh, this choice phrase isn't an end run around minimum wage or segregation. Like These are principles that we just have to be reinforced more strongly than ever and also give people hope by sharing, um, you know, by sharing positive outcomes of people's lives. And we just actually uh, said goodbye to some uh, a new advocacy group uh, that started up from, uh, it's called Autistics for Autistics, that's just left our office and was speaking to our staff. And I think that is also critically important is the more people that we've all been involved in seeing them, you know, move to homes on their own and get jobs and find their voice uh, to give them a bigger presence and speaking. Cause that's the other thing that's going to shift. Uh, I don't want to see live work play being a leader in, in uh, you know, a necessary leader in advocacy 10 years from now. I would like to think that, you know, there are many other voices that are, that are filling that gap right now. So that's also in transition. Mm-hmm. You know, the role we play is also going to shift as people are better able to speak for them themselves. And we have more and more examples uh, to share because it's not new. Mm-hmm. I know you've been talking mm-hmm. about this, so I don't want to name quite mm-hmm. how many decades, mm-hmm. Al, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I resist the idea that it's new. And yet we both know in some senses, people, 
with intellectual disabilities taking their place in their communities is still relatively new. Uh, mm-hmm. So as they grow, in, those people I looked at in their 20s that just moved into that new new housing community, um, you know, there's going to be 20 years from now, they'll have been, you know, longtime participants in that neighborhood. And what's that going to mean? And it's going to change things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, um, uh, when, when you look at these big sort of shifts, you know, from institutionalization to sort of social packs, uh, in the community, uh, and then now from social packs to more direct and, and, and personal engagement in more general ways, you know, those big kinds of shifts. Um, have been met not just with resistance, but also things that have perverted uh, them in, in, in the process. And so there's, um, you know, it's a it's it's a vexing kind of issue. I I I, I do get the point that you're making. You know that uh, I just uh, participated with a um, with a group of folks on the the spectrum. And, um, these, uh, the, these individuals were saying, Hey, you know, they said to me, I did a presentation on community and, you know, social capital and inclusivity. And, and, and folks said to me, Hey, you know, people in the community don't want us around that we don't feel very welcome that we always have to sort of prove ourselves. So we'd rather just be by ourselves or, or would rather just have our own world. Uh, thank you very much. And, and those kinds of, you know, those kinds of realities, I mean, family members who have been promised uh, by organization that uh, we're going to make an inclusive community and people are going to be welcoming and, you know, your son and daughter is going to be loved and respected. And then they don't get that. You know, their, their reaction is, well, let's just, you know, put the four walls up and let's just bypass community. What do you what do you say to that? What do you think about that? Well, I, I totally understand it, and that is something that I get um, mentioned often from family members. So, you know, if I'll say something like I was talking about sports earlier, and, and uh, I'll say, well, you know, there are other options. Oh, we tried that. You know, we went to yeah. this place, and yeah. they hit my kid in the head with a rock. I'm like, yeah, right. I get why that's a pretty serious barrier to considering other right. things, and I think it's really getting into the conversation of what, what's been done and what will be done uh, to work on ensuring that that community is actually welcoming and inclusive. And that's also the shift we've made with uh, employment. You know, we're not so focused because it's, you know, becoming more and more success. It's not so much about can we get an opportunity. It's how much time have we actually spent with that employer preparing to be welcoming and inclusive and like what's the certainty that this is going to work who else is on board is it just the boss told someone you got to hire somebody because that's pretty shallow inclusion right and so i think this is this is the key to that sort of question is that yeah inclusion is not some sort of a shallow you know it's not just a word it's a lot of work and people need Mm -hmm. help they don't have the experience look at me i was 21 i never met anybody Mm -hmm. am i Right. You know, my all my formative years, I didn't meet a single person with right. uh, one of these right. disabilities. Right. So what, what would I know about it? And so right. I could have ended up being the boss of some other place and someone coming to me saying, would you hire somebody? I wouldn't know anything about it. So I'd need a lot of help, yes. even if I was open to it. And so that's really, the I think, the perspective we're bringing is honoring. There's a very good reason 
why you're having those negative experiences. And while to some degree it could be, yeah, the world has some bad people in it, I think more likely it's that the world is mostly good people who don't know things uh, that they need to learn. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's not a very satisfying, you know, short-term answer for someone who's had really negative traumatic um, experiences. Right. But on the other hand, we can point to examples where, uh, but look at what's happening in this workplace or in this neighborhood or in this league uh, where, you know, there's been people with disabilities involved for many, many years and very, very positive experiences. And beyond that, they actually feel uh, more safety and mm-hmm. have better mental mm-hmm. and physical health because their world has grown. They have more relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And they have lots of people who go to bat for them. I mean, uh, different people that live in different communities. I, I've run out of stories of how, you know, uh, they dropped their wallet or something and, you know, it was no problem. You know, there's people backing them mm-hmm. up who know them and support them. Or if they yeah. see something suspicious, you know, we all, this is what yeah. safety ultimately, right? Do I have people right. who care about me who will step up when I yes. need it? Um, yes. And paid support can be a part of that. And I mm-hmm. guess you can try and, you know, create these, um, these sort of uh, uniform communities with the idea that that's safer, but not really sure that, you know, research bears that out. And, I think mm-hmm. people just lose in general when we, we wall ourselves mm-hmm. off. So that would be the yeah. one thing I've learned over the one real piece is that, you know, this is not about a one-sided thing where people with disabilities are benefiting. Um, the mm-hmm. really more dramatic feedback I've gotten is from other people um, who, like myself, went through an eye-opening experience of I am missing out on a big mm-hmm. segment of the community that, you know, I've, yeah. I've personally benefited from in terms of learning and, and uh, yeah. friendships and yeah. what the world's all about. So I think that, yeah. you know, that takes time. And I, I don't disrespect those uh, people with those negative experiences and why they would react that way. And there's mm-hmm. many communities that have gone through such things. And uh, change takes time. Hey, racism's not over, right? <laughs> We're right. working right. on it. Right. Um, but I don't think yeah. we want go, to go back to uh, to segregated uh, communities, but at the same time, yeah. we can't say that we can't say that that's over. You know, that's still a daily challenge for people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Keenan, it's been such a a pleasure. Um, you know, looking at these vexing issues uh, with someone of your experience and, and stature. You know, uh, Keenan Weller is a uh, is is really a a, a leader um, around the world in in this particular perspective. And certainly we've been, um, we've really been um, uh, uh, better people, uh, I think, for experiencing the kind of work that you and Julie have done for many, many years uh, in your, your hometown of Ottawa and around Canada and indeed around, around the world. Um, we've been talking with Keenan Weller, um, who's uh, co-director of the, of the organization Live, Work, Play, in the Ottawa area, uh, co-director with Julie Kingston, uh, and um, they've done some amazing things. Um, we appreciate, Keenan, you taking some time uh, talking with us today, and we're going to look forward to seeing you down the road, um, I'm sure, at many, many uh, events and activities uh, over the years. Thanks, Keenan. Uh, I'm honored. Thank you.